From New Orleans, Louisiana, it's Empirical's PowerTech Podcast. This is the place where we talk about bringing technology to the power industry. Our goal is to educate you on the most popular trends, bring you actionable strategies from industry thought leaders, and help you make sure your utility is prepared for the future. I'm your host, Matthew Sachs, president of Empirical, former utility engineer and power industry advocate. Empirical has attended the Substation Design Solution, or SDS, industry consortium for years, and an ever-increasing number of utilities, contractors, and vendors are now participating in this conference. It's focused on building and standardizing new automated design tools for the electric utility industry. And naturally, change is hard, and transitioning to these new software tools is no small feat. Even when most people recognize the general scope of a particular effort, Proper planning is frequently a phase that kind of doesn't get the attention it deserves. In this episode, we talk about how important the planning phase is for transitioning to automated methods for substation design, the conversations that should be had, and the considerations that should be made before any real work begins. Tim Timler was hired by Empirical in 2015 as a protection and control systems designer. For the past four years, his work has focused on the technical development of the AutoCAD electrical toolset for application in protection and control design. With over 11 years of experience using AutoCAD Electrical, or ACAD-E, and four years of experience working with the substation design suite of tools, Tim has developed and produced symbol libraries and standards for both Empirical's relay department and for a large utility. With multiple best practice documents and presentations delivered, Tim strives to educate designers and engineers from across the country on topics ranging from project organization workflows and panel interconnections to dynamic symbol creation and smart circuit applications within AutoCAD Electrical. Tim, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Now, your expertise lies in providing traditional services, PNC design, in a newfound way. And clearly, some utilities have this desire to move toward such automated design. For those utilities that want to do so, What are some of the traps or pitfalls that you've identified during your years of experience when customers attempt to implement design automation? I'd say the first and most detrimental pitfall that I've seen is an organizational or departmental commitment level, more specifically a lack of it. If companies don't identify the right individuals and commit the requisite time, budgetary, and human resources to this effort, they end up wasting a lot of time and money producing something that's going to ultimately fall short of what they expected. Those considerations, the human, the time, and monetary resources are what I would consider the three strategic pillars that are the foundation of a successful implementation strategy. Unfortunately, I think many of us have been on that wrong side of of a big strategic effort to implement something new and seeing that frustration when maybe there's not that commitment and how difficult it is and how it sucks the energy right out of that effort. So can you elaborate on those three pillars a little bit more? For example, in time, what particular aspect of time that is so important? Are you just talking about the schedules and the deadlines here? There's that, but I'm also talking about expectations and managing your expectation level. In my experience, this hasn't really been sort of a buy and hold investment strategy. A lot of times it's more like day trading where a company wants to get something They want it to be implemented, and there's really no stumbling blocks in the road. There's no development that happens. And that's not the case with this technology since it's pretty new. Even four years in, it's still being developed, and I think it will be developed for a while. 
But once the decision is made to move forward, there should definitely be adequate resources devoted to the scheduling and, and scope definition. Typically, that, that would involve bringing in a partner like Empirical to help you with that definition. Because sometimes customers, they, they know their side, they know their design, but they need somebody who knows how the tools work with this design to help them along, to help them kind of give them guidance. And the more flexibility they have, the better, because it's going to be a long, it's a long process. A customer we're currently working with, they've started and stopped their substation design automation development three times now. And in every instance, some degree of progress was lost due to that latency that occurred between those contracts. And you can understand, I mean, it's a natural cycle where, you know, you don't really necessarily have a clear idea of what you want. But ultimately, the lost time translated into lost dollars. It's very difficult to kind of get a cohesive strategy going in a development strategy, specifically when you have breaks in development that could last months. The opposite extreme would be trying to rush a deployment. Rushing to meet an arbitrary deadline would create gaps in development. And these are knowledge gaps and material gaps. Knowledge gaps tend to be, how am I applying these attributes and this data across my drawing set? If I'm only looking at a limited scope of these drawings because of a development timeline, I might miss how these... I would say attributes and information actually go to other drawings that I'm not maybe considering at the time. And material gaps being something like the symbols and attributes and how that attribute data is actually purposed within the symbols. What might work for a small scope of what you're trying to look at in a specific phase doesn't necessarily translate. And I always think that you can compartmentalize the development work like that, but you have to have a concrete development strategy laid out so that if you do have these stops and starts, you're starting at a point that's going to carry you forward as opposed to kind of looping back around. Everything in this software kind of interconnects as a cohesive data system, not with just with this software, but with the Autodesk Vault software and Autodesk Inventor software. And so these the phases in your development strategy should mirror that paradigm. And rushing to establish some arbitrary timelines without taking into account the overall functionality and the usability that your engineering team is going to want, you're going to decrease your chance of buy-in, which ultimately is going to doom this whole endeavor anyway. It's not really just a desire to improve the quality of your engineering product. By using this technology, there should also be a desire to improve the time spent in delivering that product to the end user. That's a good point. We can set up and and develop these projects and we want to kind of jump in and plan for them and go, but kind of not knowing where you're going. You know the outcome you want. I think a lot of utilities understand what they, or kind of have a vision for what that outcome should be in terms of their design, but they might not have that jumping off point, need some help with that definition, but also need some help with getting a realistic view of what time it's going to take, what effort it's going to take. And it's certainly not trivial. So let's, let's move on to, from the money side, how does the budgeting aspect of an implementation strategy factor into all of it? It's certainly a major consideration that we've seen in our own company as we've adopted that automation. Absolutely. And this, you know, the budget problem is obviously probably the most straightforward of these three, because the reality is that we have to keep the lights on. And this is, uh, funding an endeavor this consequential is no small feat. You know, you have to, you have to have the, that proper plan kind of laid out. So again, you know, if, if there's a desire to push the technology forward prematurely, 
in order to get like a return on investment, it's kind of a tricky balancing act because you definitely don't want to leave those holes in your development strategy or do something out of expediency because maybe it's, maybe it is quicker, but you end up not developing something in the software that eventually kind of hinders the software's ability to function at its sort of full capacity. One unintended consequence of doing a subdivided development is like I was kind of saying before, you run the risk of focusing too narrowly on the part and you lose sight of the whole. It's kind of like, I guess, with anything. I mean, most development strategies center around, you know, you have a limited budget to develop a pilot project and that might be developing a narrow scope of symbols that you're going to use just specifically for this pilot project. The next might be building out a limited library and converting some of your more used design standards that are maybe 60-70% of your designs. And following that, the next phase might be panel-to-panel interconnections. All those work individually well, but they should not be an end in and of themselves, and, and they shouldn't be developed as such, because ultimately you end up spending more time and money sort of turning the car around, so to speak, to go back for something you forgot. And the further along you get into this development where those considerations aren't met, ultimately you'd have to go and change, maybe instead of changing 100 symbols, you're changing 1,000 to either meet new functionality or what have you. That is to say, like most things we design for the built world, crawl before you walk, before you run kind of would apply in this situation as well. Let's talk about the importance of personnel. Have you experienced unique challenges relative to the individuals that you've worked with on past efforts? If so, what are some that stand out to you? Well, speaking generally, we're subordinate to the demands of of our customer workload, and that's a diverse workload. And satisfying those demands is our first priority. And naturally, as a consequence, it puts a strain on, on our people, you know, our most limited and valuable resource. But when you select a team for this, you really have to make an effort to include those people that, that might be some of your best people, those people that are, have a, a good sense, a good grasp of the software, not the software you're necessarily using, but the platforms they're built off of, and also people that you would want to examine your overall design philosophy and seeing where there's things that can be changed and things that could be improved upon, because sometimes, you know, Bending an old way of doing things around new technology is, is difficult. When I was at one of our customers, I was tasked with training and mentoring a group of eight individuals total from three departments. And all of them were really highly intelligent and highly experienced in their departments. We got along great. And it was generally a really good working group of people. But the problem was is that the disparity level in experience with using the regular AutoCAD software was vast. I mean, the group ranged from highly proficient users to those who hardly knew basic commands. And so that's difficult in and of itself. And the question I had to ask myself is, how am I going to teach a person with little AutoCAD experience how to use a rules-based software that's built on the AutoCAD platform? I mean, it was challenging, but in the end, we succeeded. And it was a fantastic learning opportunity for me. It helped me focus on the aspects of the program that I took for granted and ultimately helped me become a better teacher and, as a consequence, helped me become a better resource for that customer. Interesting. So we've hit then on those three pillars you mentioned of time, budget, and people. 
What other challenges do you see that are really important for utilities to address if they want to move in this direction? That would have to be buy-in for sure, personnel buy-in. The ownership has to buy into it, management and uh, accounting, all, all those people. But almost as important are the engineers and designers in your departments who are going to be working with these new tools. It gets not just a change in design tools. It's actually, you know, more of a change in design philosophy. And that isn't to say that engineers will be changing the way they engineer. So I'll use a car analogy. When someone learns to drive, they're essentially learning the principles of safely operating a motor vehicle on the road. They learn how to accelerate, brake, turn, park, and things like that. They also get a general understanding about the rules of the road, you know, all roadways, like buckle your safety belt, obey posted signage, things like that. What I mean by a change in design philosophy in this context is those nuanced differences between driving a car with a standard transmission versus driving a jacked up pickup truck with a stick shift, or maybe the differences between city, country, and interstate driving. So it's not necessarily changing the rules of the road, but in this case, we're buying a different mode of transportation, or we're transitioning from congested city driving to a high-speed interstate driving. The principles are the same, but the application of those principles is different. So that's something that must be communicated and understood. You know, certain ways that your engineering personnel communicate and execute their designs under the current design paradigm are going to have to change to some degree to better fit the tools and sort of maximize their efficiency and effectiveness. Realizing the way that you do things right now in like, say, AutoCAD or MicroStation may not fully translate to using this intelligence software. Like I was kind of saying before, conforming new tools to an old toolbox is counterproductive in most circumstances. It's not entirely undoable to really kind of say, we really want it this way and can the software do this or do that. In almost all cases I've been in, that was a doable thing. But you got to be sort of strategic on how you meld that the old way with the new way. Because if you're too rigid, trying to bend a new software around an old way of doing things is ultimately going to produce diminishing returns and create convoluted workflows that are going to be actually harder to adopt than your old way, your old workflows. This is kind of like, eventually, you might as well just be using regular AutoCAD as opposed to AutoCAD Electrical. So buy-in is one of the most convincing other people that, you know, it's okay to do something a little different or, or sort of make these changes to the way they're doing things because it'll be easier, it'll be more cost-effective, and it'll cut down on, on errors. Trying to convince them of that is, is one of the biggest challenges that I've seen actually so far. Now, for a utility that believes in this path you've laid out to better design methods, where do you think they would see the most significant time savings? I would say that the software is built to reduce errors by data sharing, generating project reports that you can use in your QA, QC process. Everybody that's sort of had a look at the software and has been in meetings and conferences talking about the software understands that where you know the tech dev department at Empirical is truly unique is that we're trying to approach the aspect of usability and project delivery as like our first consideration. Reducing errors is obviously part of that, but most engineers are going to do QAQC the way they've always done it. You know, you still are going to go through the drawing point by point in most cases and still check your designs that way. You can use these reports as a help in that stuff, but you're still going to use that an old way of QAQC because you just can't replace certain things. 
I would say probably 80% of the time savings is going to depend on how you actually apply the tools and build them into your standards for design. There are multiple ways of doing things in these tools from you know drawing cables to using the symbol data, but there are very creative applications that you can use to really reduce the amount of clicks that you're, you're using to execute certain commands. And that's kind of where our focus is. It's not just make this a time-saving aspect of checking and QAQC, but also it's a, a big time saver in actually designers and drafters going through and putting engineering design on paper. Well, this has really been a, a lot of great information. Let's say a utility agrees now with your concept that they want to start using AutoCAD Electrical for design. How would you kind of sum up the major points that you just presented for us today? I would say that, number one, select a small group of experienced core team members that will ultimately become your company's SMEs, preferably from multiple departments. The people should be intimately familiar with how your design works now and be very open to the potential of augmenting any processes to conform to the the rules of the new software. It'd be nice if these people were in a relative position of authority to authorize or at least propose changes to any of your standards so that you don't get bogged down into a back and forth between departments. I mean, some people say in a standards group, they might be less resistant to changing something if they're not exposed to actually working with the software and understanding exactly why something would need to be changed in the standard. So I would definitely include people from multiple departments, but again, keeping it small. Try not to waste a lot of time and resources on including people who aren't interested in improving the way the current platform is, because ultimately that's what a utility is going to be after. You don't just want to do it a different way. You want to do it a better way. And additionally, I wouldn't put people into this core group. And when I say core group, I mean as small as two to three people. I mean, I started out as one, but in a utility that we've worked with, there was eight, like I had mentioned before. So I would say anywhere from three to four people from multiple departments that are going to actually be there for at least, I would say, 12 months. Six months might be fine, but you'll have to keep in mind that training is something that takes time. And so, you know, when you bring somebody into a group of two or three people, four people, you have to kind of go over that same training again, just to kind of bring them up to speed. And even with that core training that they do get, you kind of lose that application mindshare that maybe that other person that left took with them. So there's always a little bit of lag to bring somebody new into it. And the most critical time in this is the, is the beginning. I would say it's the first six months. So remember, because resources are scarce, you just make it a small core group of highly motivated individuals. Secondly, I would say once the commitment is made to implement the new technology, fully commit to it. Stopping production means stopping progression. Restarting equals regression. Third, don't rush deployment if you can help it. And most importantly, don't develop on a project deadline. It may sound like a good idea, especially for companies like Empirical, to develop this content on a project budget and deadline. But this is going to inevitably bust the project budget and you'll end up cutting corners in development just to satisfy the deadline of the actual project. This ultimately leads to lost buy-in from people because they're going to be like, well, this didn't work or we had to finish an AutoCAD anyway. And so 
people that might be a little more skeptical of it anyway are going to have that validated if you're you're trying to rush it and you're busting their project budgets. So you're typically working with specific guidelines and project parameters when you're doing a traditional project. And that's sort of another thing, that another reason to avoid doing this on a project deadline is because sometimes those, those parameters that you're using in that specific project might not be universal in their application, at least where the software is concerned. So you definitely want to keep it separate from any project deadlines. But I would say a potential solution to that, maybe this is number four, is it may be a good idea to disperse a fraction of these development costs over multiple projects that have higher profitability. Always keeping in mind that eventually all of your projects are going to be using this new technology. So if you can spread the cost burden of development around to certain projects that can handle it, you should maybe consider that. Well, that's been really fascinating. I appreciate not just your experience with all of these tools, but also your advice in terms of how to get there, not just what you're doing. And I think that's incredibly valuable. I think there are also some details too in here that we could probably explore further, maybe even in a future episode. Absolutely. I mean, I could talk about, we've sort of talked about what not to do. And I think, you know, maybe next episode we can talk about exactly what to do and sort of the processes of, of breaking down and implementing all the points that I, that I talk about here. I agree. That would be fantastic. And Tim, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. We've heard from practical experience someone that has implemented automated design for protection and control schemes within a substation. And as always, experience is the best teacher. Moving to automated design with AutoCAD Electrical requires three main facets, the right time, the right budget, and the right people. But even beyond that, an organizational commitment is required to keep moving toward the target and not allowing the pressure of limited resources to derail that effort. For companies to ultimately achieve success, they need a vision of the outcome that automated design brings in terms of efficiency, effectiveness, and quality. Using the strategies Tim presented today offers a roadmap for doing so. Well, that about wraps up this edition of the PowerTech Podcast. If you haven't yet, please log in to wherever you've subscribed to the podcast and both rate this show and leave a comment as that really helps new subscribers in the power industry to find us. Also, for more free insights on bringing technology to the power industry, make sure to visit Empirical.com. We post free white papers, articles, and all of our previous podcasts there. Plus, you can register for a free 3D strategy planning session call with one of our 3D planning specialists. Again, you can do all of that and much more at Empirical.com. Please stay tuned and join us for the next episode of the PowerTech Podcast. And until next time, keep engineering powerful solutions.